0: to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Ria Wong with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. I am so excited. I'm fangirling all over the place. Today's guest is my new friend, Kara Logan Berlin, the founder and CEO of Harvest, which is a development and strategy consulting firm. She also has an amazing TED Talk, which we will post in the show notes. We're going to talk today about fundraising. So welcome, Kara.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very flattered. I know you have a very loyal following, so I'm happy
0: to be here. I am honored to have you. So tell me a little bit about yourself and your path to fundraising. Well, I grew up in a
1: very small town in Eastern Oregon, which is the watermelon capital of the world, self-proclaimed. I'm I'm not necessarily sure there's actually anyone that crowns that, but I grew up in this town of 10,000 people and had these two great extraordinary parents that were naturally incredibly charming and could sell just about anything but we're both really different. So my dad transferred 10 times in college and went to eight different colleges before he got his degree and said that it's not what you learn in school. It's just the people you know and the people you meet. And my mother worked three jobs and lived at home and put herself through college. And she always was a big believer that like you have to learn and educate yourself and constantly push to know everything. And as a result, like, they built this human, me, that, like, loves people and is super curious and wants to understand them and is naturally willing to sell you kind of anything. So – I think fundraising was just an accidental place to fall into, which I actually think is true for anybody in nonprofit fundraising because, you know, development is not an undergraduate course at universities. So nobody even knows it's a job, even though it's like the world's coolest job. And I went out of college into recruiting, recruited attorneys for a law firm, which was really fun. I was in charge of the summer program and lateral hiring, but it was not my passion. I think when I was like trying to pry a keg out of a partner's hands on a houseboat in the middle of the night and I was 24, I was like, this can't be my purpose. Yeah,
0: that, this is not my
1: jam. I this is not- I cannot be the reason I exist when I'm like, right. get off the jet ski. So then, summer associates. So, you know what? They were the best. I loved (laughs) them. I loved them so much. And if I were them, I would have been terribly behaved too. We paid them like $2,500 a week for me to take them, you know, to baseball games and to Tahoe and to drive them home drunk three days a week. Like, why wouldn't they have had the greatest summer of their life? But recruiting was a great way to learn a lot about people and how you hire people and how you think about who the right people are and how important culture fit is, which has been really helpful as a development consultant and as a fundraiser. And then from there, I went into special events. I started at City Meals on Wheels here in New York City doing special events for them, which I loved. And I think if you are a development person, when I'm hiring development directors, if they have special event experience... I love it because it means their attention to detail is sick. It means mm-hmm. they understand how to look at a donor base and realize that special events aren't a party. They're actually your best pipeline to major donors long term.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then they multitask, they're really good under pressure. So, those are skills that are hard to learn in the other positions in development out of the gate. And then I went to a place called Harlem RBI, which is now called Dream. And I was the director of development there. When I started there, the budget was one point two million. When I left four and a half years later, we were, I think, five and a half, six million and we were like ninety-two percent privately funded. So that was where I really cut my chops on like how do you do this when you don't have a board that has a gazillion, you know, billionaires on it and you don't really have tools and you only have one staff member and And that was like such good training for me. And then from there, I went to Robin Hood, where I managed a pool of 400 major donors. And I did 150 meetings a year and just asked for a lot of money, which was really fun, but not nearly as hard as being a director of development. And if I learned anything about myself, it's that I like
0: things to be a little harder. So I started consulting. So you are a badass fundraiser. Talk to me about, and I think consulting is so fun because it allows you to kind of kick the tires and look under the hood of a lot of different nonprofits. What are some of the common mistakes that you see nonprofits making with respect to fundraising? Oh,
1: gosh, the list is so long. The big things you see are people bringing their own baggage to the table and putting it on to their donors. So Mm -hmm. saying we can't send that to everyone because they don't like events or they don't like to golf or they wouldn't want to do that or that's too big of a gift for them. At the end of the day, you don't know anything about your donors until you sit down with them one-on-one and talk to them. Everything you assume about your donors is based on numbers and not based on the fact that they're a human being that gives you their own personal money. So, I think you know a big mistake with individuals is just Letting how you feel about the ask influence making the ask. I think a big problem with corporate partners and companies is that you don't understand how much more transactional that is, that you think that you can sell them on the big idea or the emotional part of the work, which the mission match is important. But for them, this has to make sense for them. It's coming out of a budget that's allocated to certain people. So they need a lot of time to make the decision, and they need to understand what they get for it. Are there volunteer opportunities? Are there social media hits? Is there branding? Not recognizing that every audience you sit down with to ask for money needs something different and that you have to be able to code switch in between what language they need you to speak to them in?:
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, that really resonates. like, let's actually talk to the donor and focus on what they want versus what we want. Yeah. And I, I see the biggest problem being that like nonprofits talk about themselves way too much.:
1: Oh, yeah, please stop talking in the donor meeting. I'm begging you to stop speaking. I would say of like a thousand donor meetings I've done, I've had maybe 10 or 15 real conversations about the work ever. There's a reason I do this work. I'm passionate about it. I care about it. I want to help people. I want to make the world a better place in the way that I do it. There's a reason people that run nonprofits went into that work, right? They either started in some sort of social service or direct work, or they have a higher belief and they wanted to lead something. There's a reason people don't do this work. The reason that person works for a bank or a law firm or a hedge fund or a private equity firm is because they wanted to do that. So when you keep telling them everything about what you do, they just leave the conversation. They don't have capacity for it. I get it.
0: (laughs) So when you say that you have only had a couple of conversations about the work, what do you talk about in the meeting?
1: I talk about them. So I Mm. say to them usually, how did you first come to us? Or if I know, I say, listen, I know that you came through Lucy. How did you guys meet? Where did you go to college? Where did you grow up? Are those your children? They're darling. I love them. Where do they go to school? How did they end up at that school? Do they love that school? Are you very involved there? What made you decide to do that? What part of the city do you live in? Oh, how do you like it? Everything about them and who they are as a human, just like you would if you meet somebody at a cocktail party or just like you would if you're introduced to someone. And then you say to them, why do you give to us? I'm trying to sit down with people and understand why do you give to us? Where else do you give? What's important to you? Why are you philanthropic at all? Lots of people don't give away their money. Why do you do it? Get an idea for who they are and what they care about. And then I can think about what it is about our mission that most applies to them. If they say to me, I'm so worried, I grew up without really any money. And, you know, my parents had blue collar jobs, and I was the first generation to go to college, or I was the first person to ever be really, really successful like this. And I look at my kids and I'm not sure if they understand what this means or the idea of giving back then i can say do you want us to help you do that with your kids do you want a volunteer experience do you want to do this or if somebody says i just finished working on the campaign for my kid's school i can say how did you like being on a campaign we're thinking about launching something later or we go to a lot of events great we do these 3 events a year would you ever want to be in the host committee we do a really fun kickoff party like finding ways to engage them based on what they already tell me they like instead of telling them for 11,000 minutes what we do and why we're important, they already believe in what we do or they wouldn't have taken the meeting. So we're past that part now. So it's great to give them your 30-second elevator pitch. You know, Just to give you the background, we were founded in X. Our budget is X. Our mission is X. This is how we have great impact right now. And then see if they have any follow-up questions. But most Mm -hmm. of the time, what they say is, that sounds amazing. Congratulations.
0: (laughs) So I'm going to talk about something a little bit more personal now. And it's actually not anything I've really ever seen in fundraising discussed. But like... There is a likability factor, right? Like you're a very likable person. I'm a likable person. I like
1: and 90% of people for 10%, they literally want to put me in a garbage can and roll me down a hill. So
0: Yeah, well, you, you can't you can't bat a thousand all the time. But I mean, the point is that we don't actually ever really talk as fundraisers about like the likability factor because I think, I don't know, call it charisma, call it persuasion, but like there is a, a likability. And I'm just wondering if you have cultivated that, or does that come naturally to you?
1: It's such a hard thing to talk about without sounding like a complete jerk. I like
0: people. this is nonprofit lowdown. Just let it all hit. Okay, like, be good. free. Here's what. I No judgment. Saying. I really like people. I like yeah. them. I
1: even like the flawed, horrible human beings. Like, I like people. I understand them. I want to understand more why they make the decisions they do, why they are who they are, why they care about. I have a lot of empathy for people. I think almost all bad behavior comes from either insecurity or fear, which are actually just like sisters anyway. And I think that part of making people comfortable is that I allow people to be who they are and let them be who they are and understand that. And that doesn't stop the fact that I think they can do extraordinary things with their wealth. I don't have to to think that they're the best person in the world. I don't have to think they make all the right decisions. I also don't have to change who they are. I'm not gonna win that battle. I've had Mm -hmm. meetings where people have said racist, misogynistic, just ignorant things. I can try to educate them as well as I can, but at the end of the day, I'm there to close the gift because I'm Mm -hmm. trying to serve the mission I serve, right? Mm -hmm. Your therapist and their spouse or partner can figure out how to make them be a better human, but part of allowing people to be who they are and still be able to pull out the part of them that I think can do good work in the world makes it easy for people to sit with me. I think with friends, I mean, I just think I'm a whole lot of fun. So I think having 5,000 cousins and every one of them was more interesting than me made me cultivate that skill. Being a not particularly attractive child and adolescent really makes you build your personality. I'll give you that. If you want to go to any high school dances, and you live in a small town, you have to be a lot of fun if you're not attractive. So, um, <laughs> and I didn't miss the dance. So I, I think I just really saw where my where my weaknesses were there, and I decided to build them up early. I also only had brothers that just crucified me. So it gives you very tough skin and a good sense of humor.
0: But part of what you're saying really resonates. So like one of my favorite books is a classic, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And it's so simple, right? Like people just want to talk about themselves. And the most beautiful word in the English language to them is their own name.
1: I have great fear about my own name because people always mispronounce it. And then I have to think, is it worth telling you it's Kara and not Kara? Or should I just let it go?
0: <laughs> Please, with Rhea and Rhea, like I don't even go there anymore. I'm like, I'll answer both. It's fine. I'm like, um, yeah. Exactly. At least just call me. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about a little bit about the we touched on it, but the reckoning that one has to do in order to be a good fundraiser. And I I was thinking about this like a psychology game, right? Like when you're an athlete, you visualize yourself on the field. And so like part of your success is training and part of it is your ability to really believe in your success. So like what does a fundraiser have to do in order to get into the psychology of being a good fundraiser? Oh, it's such a good question. I think The biggest
1: thing is you have to divorce yourself from the idea that this is about you. And if you don't close the gift, it's a personal failure. There's no surprise or accident in my mind why people who are like good daters are good fundraisers. Like I went on 10 million dates. I was never a sad like single dater. I was like, "Ooh, I really like you." "Oh, you don't like me." All right, next. Like the idea that like you're just trying to make a match, you put yourself out there. It's the same thing with fundraising. It is a rejection game, and you have to go into it knowing I'm going to ask 10 people for meetings and only 2 are going to take them. And mm. of those meetings that I get, I'm not going to close a gift in every one of those meetings. I've got to do a round of this before I even, a round of getting to know and building a relationship with someone, probably before I even make an ask at all. And then the ask might not, they might not even close on that ask the first time. It might be five rounds of this or discussions, or it might just be, listen, after that first meeting, you're amazing, but we have giving priorities and you aren't one of them. And that Mm. isn't about me not doing a good job. My job is to share the work as a fundraiser and to share all the different ways that donors can get involved and get engaged and learn about us and have a meaningful connection. And they will take advantage of whatever they want to. But my job is to share the options, to ask, and then to respond appropriately. And I think for fundraisers, they have to get in that mindset that like, this is the job. The job is both qualifying and disqualifying people. And Mm -hmm. it's getting rejected because that tells me where not to spend my time so that you can find the one donor that makes you the transformational gift. And you got to be able to just roll with it because if you take it too seriously, it will ruin you. It will just ruin you.
0: Let's talk about scarcity mindset for a second. And I will say very freely, I really battled with this. So we all grow up with money baggage. And in my family, I mean, I grew up very middle class, but my parents were children of immigrants. So there was definitely the scarcity mindset around money. And then I, to your earlier point, projected that mindset onto donors. Is that something that is common that you've seen amongst fundraisers? And if so, how can we get ourselves out of the scarcity mindset?
1: It's funny because, and I'm going to sound really harsh, but I'm so direct. So this is what you get. But do any fundraisers, when I go work with clients or I go work, or I do board trainings, or I'm working with CEOs, or development teams, or whoever, and they say, I mean, you know, the market's been really hard, or because something, because of what's happening, it's really hard to raise money right now. That's such garbage. There's so much money. There's so Mm -hmm. much money, particularly in New York City. People are making money hand over fist. Everybody's taking home more. There is so much money in that top 1%, and everybody in New York, you are either part of philanthropy, you're either on a board or you're a big donor to someplace if you have real money and you're in the top 1% here, or you're some sort of social pariah because it's (laughs) such a part of the culture of New York. Philanthropy is a part of how you both show your wealth and that you're not a horrible human. And it's a big part of the social network here and how people meet each other and connect. So, when people say there's just, there's not, you know, there's so many of us doing charter fundraising or there's so many of us doing social services. No, you're not doing it the right way. If you can't find more donors and you can't find more money, then your strategy's off. And I can help you with that. But there is more here for you always. Now, I think the psychology of raising money when you grow up without very much of it and you feel different about it makes you feel different about those asks too. Oh gosh, I think raising money psychologically is really hard if you don't go all balls out on it and you're not just completely fearless because at the end of the day, there is such an imbalance of power. And I Mm. can only speak from a place as a woman, like the majority of people who hold wealth in this country are older white men. So Mm -hmm. as a woman, particularly when I was young and had my better face, it was this weird thing. You were constantly going and sitting in a man's office, an older, very successful man, and trying to build a relationship and ask them for money. And that feels really weird. I think it's infinitely harder if you are in another marginalized community. I think it's not an accident that there is such a a small percentage of fundraisers or people of color. I think that all of these feelings are amplified. And that's something that's the biggest thing. If I had to list one thing the field needs to fix, it's that, and making that process better. And a lot of that is just changing the mindset and the framework in your mind that you are somehow in a weakened position in the process of fundraising. So for me to get past it when I was younger, I just had to flip a switch in my head where it was, I have just as much power as this person. My power is that I get to share this with them and give them this opportunity to do something amazing. If they don't Mm -hmm. do it, that's on them and I'm going to tap out. But I don't have to do anything that makes me uncomfortable and I don't have to spend time with anyone that I don't want to or have to spend time with. But I'm not here begging for a favor. I'm not here asking you for a favor. I'm giving you a shot at doing something totally awesome. So you either take it or you don't. And that's on you because this train has left the station. So get on board or get out of the way. And that made it easier. But it's a hard thing to do. And fundraisers need a lot of training and coaching. A huge part of my work is trying to train and coach and uplift and empower people to feel differently about this work. Because you can think of it like that, it's a lot more fun.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're hitting on so many things that I've been thinking about recently, particularly as it pertains to fundraisers of color. And I mean, all of the things that you talked about totally amplified as a person of color or as a like, young woman of color. And there are tales in the field of like the microaggressions, particularly, I think, Black women face as fundraisers. And I don't really know what to do about that other than we need to figure out how to tilt the balance of power and wealth in this country, which is a much longer- Yeah.
1: It's a much longer, massive, and it's such a massive problem. (laughs) Without getting too dark, I just keep thinking, in 20 years, it will be better. (laughs) yeah yeah um, you know it's really hard and it's real and it has to be validated because this is such a great field and it's such incredible work we get to do and I want it to be a place where everyone feels like they can do it well and, and it feels open to everyone I think having the conversation openly is really important I think my personal goal is I'm trying to work with people to develop I have my own Harvest Development boot camp curriculum where I teach people how to do this work, but I have a curriculum developed that I'm trying to work with universities to sell so that universities can start teaching undergraduates. like The development is an actual course in college, and we can start with this next generation of training everybody out of the gate on how to do this work and to feel empowered and good about it. But it's hard, and I do not think that executive directors... I think they're starting to understand it more, but I think executive directors and CEOs don't always understand the imbalance of power because oftentimes they're treated more as a peer with the donors than your fundraiser, or your team is. So I think mm. that's been slower to get the support for teams because I don't know if they actually, in a lot of cases, understood how hard this can be.
0: So that's a great lead-in into my last question, which is we know that it is really hard to find development staff, especially in this town, and that the tenure of development director is about 18 months. So I'm wondering, what do you think are the major causes of turnover in the development staff? And what can we do about that?
1: I think there are like three big reasons why people leave their jobs. And I think they're all really good. So one is they have gone to an organization that's small and that only had maybe one or two or three development people. So maybe they have a budget under 5 million or under 4 million and they've gotten to learn everything they wanted to learn there. They got to do a little bit of everything, but Mm -hmm. development people there are like, all right, well, my boss is never leaving. And Mm -hmm. after 18 months, there's not really anywhere for me to go. And I've kind of gotten my hand in everything. So either they aren't given the opportunity to move or they don't see any sort of ladder. Or somebody goes into development someplace big that has 25 people on their development team and they had one specific job. They were corporate volunteerism or special events or major gifts or donor relations or stewardship. They did that job for 18 months and none of the other positions opened up. And they were like, I would like to be a director of development someday. And to do that, I have to get other experience. So then Mm -hmm. they move. And then the third is the easiest to fix, which is money. Mm -hmm. They want to be paid more. Development people are revenue producers. Pay them. Don't be cheap with your fundraisers. So Mm -hmm. if they are raising money, it's not hard for them to look around and realize, I can do this exact same thing at another organization that's equally meaningful and get paid a lot more money. And Mm -hmm. why should you be surprised they're doing that? They're fundraisers. They ask for money for a living. They should advocate for themselves. They should want more money or more opportunity or a path to learn. And so I think turnover will continue places unless the teams are led by people that either pay their people or when they hire people, help them look through and think about a path for them to continue to grow and learn. And I have some clients that are very good at that.
0: And what do you think about the case in which fundraisers are hired with unreasonable expectations? Like I I talk about the development fairy all the time, which is like, okay, as a board, we're going to invest in this thing. And then as soon as we hire a development director, like magical money is going to fall out of the sky. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, I think what I coach people on this about is you need to be really really clear about what the expectations are for you. Don't just take a job because they've offered it to you and not know exactly what they want from you because mm-hmm. you need to like make sure that that's very clear. I think part of it is asking in the interview process, how will I be measured? How will my success be measured? What do you consider successful if I'm in this job at three months, where would you like this to be? It's six months where it's being proactive. When people get in trouble like that, I'm very direct back with them on, what have you asked about what's expected of you? Don't be passive in your own career. Be yeah. as clear and direct about what people want from you as what you want from them. You've asked them how it's going to work here. Now say, what do you need from me? Because if we don't ask people what they want and need, then we just keep disappointing each other, whether it's personal life or professional life.
0: It's I was going to say that it's like brilliant life advice, not just career <laughs> and fundraising advice. So last question, anything that you want folks to know about fundraising, like what advice would you give your younger self about your fundraising career?
1: You know what? I've been so lucky. I'm so grateful for my career. I love my work so much and I have always loved it. I think... I learned a little bit later how to advocate for myself. I think I felt so lucky to have a job and I would try, but I got smarter as I got older about, you can't just ask for things. You have to demonstrate your value. So don't Mm. ever go in and ask for money just because you work hard and you're smart and you think you're great. Like walk in and say, these are the... This is, when I started, this is what we talked about I should do. This is what I've achieved. This is how it's impacted revenue. This is the value add I bring. As a result, I'd like to be compensated. I think the big thing I would tell anybody, don't do work that doesn't bring you joy. Life Mm. is too short. Like, I don't do this job because I'm good at it and I fell into it. That's how I got here. I do this because I love it. I'm super passionate about it. I want to teach everyone how to raise money in a way that like will help change the world. I want to support big ideas that make the world a better place. And the thing those, those big ideas need more than anything is money. So I do the thing I'm good at to help the world, but everyone should be finding work that makes them feel that way. And if you don't feel that way about development, get out of the field. There's a million jobs. There's a reason I counsel people out of the field all the time. I'm like, there's a reason we have 10 jobs in our life. The first one you get out of college isn't supposed to be where you land forever. Find the things you're good at and you like and do that job. Find that job. It's available to you. Like you just have to look for it, but find your joy. Awesome.
0: Well, Kara, I am so excited. We could talk forever, but we are at the end of our time together. I will make sure that we connect to your website in the show notes. If folks want to get in touch with you, want to get totally. you to coach them, all of the things. And we're definitely going to have you back because we need to talk about many other things. So oh, thank you so much I for feel being like on can the do this show. weekly. So you just let me know. <laughs> oh, don't tempt me. This could be like the Kara hour. Like, okay, <laughs> here it is again. But thank you so much for your time. And we will definitely be talking new again. All right. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you.